Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hey, y'all, it's Justin Richmond. Today on the show, we have Robert Plant, someone whose voice I've probably listened to on record more than anyone else ever. Think about all the people in and around the UK in the late 60s who probably could have easily become the singer for Zeppelin. But of course, just about any other singer would have grounded that band's sound. Instead, by some miracle, they found Plant, who was able to expertly insert himself into their soaring, loud and hard dynamic, creating some of the last century's best music. But naturally, we could only be lucky for so long. Zeppelin broke up in 1980 after their powerhouse drummer John Bonham passed away. Afterwards, Plant set out on his own, recording songs that drew inspiration from North African music, the blues, and folk. The perfect setup for his next music. Collaborations with a wonderful fiddle player with an angelic voice named Alison Krauss. Producer T-Bone Burnett paired them in 2007 and recorded an album, Raising Sand. That album sold over a million copies in the U.S., won five Grammys, including Album of the Year, and if you were around at that time, you remember it received an incredible amount of praise and attention. A decade and a half later, the two plus T-Bone again finally reunited and released a new album, Raise the Roof. Let's hear some of the song Quattro World Drifts In from their new project that came out last year. Robert Plant talks about this beautiful new collaboration with Alison Krauss with Rick Rubin on today's episode. They also discuss Plant's life-changing trip to the Sahara that inspired the riff for Led Zeppelin's Cashmere, and he remembers Bonham declaring himself the best drummer in the world, their very first meeting. 
This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Robert Plant. I was listening to one of your pre-Zeppelin songs that I had not heard before, and I wanted to ask you about what singers inspired you when you were young, because what came to mind listening to it was Tom Jones, which blew my mind, because I never made that, I never would have made yeah. that connection or thought that ever before. Yeah, it was a funny, it was like a kind of hefty tenor pitch that I created there. I was listening to a guy called Otis Clay and another guy called Vernon Garrett. Uh, they're Americans. Well, Otis Clay obviously moved over into gospel later on, but he cut some stuff on high records. But as a kid, I didn't really know much about the history of anybody. And uh, I was hugely inspired and could never get anywhere near Steve Marriott. Yeah, He animated his inner turmoil. You know, he was like a wildcat, really, but a great voice. And I think if you, if you use the voice enough, bit by bit, you can expand the range. You can kick it up a bit, push it. Your high notes get stronger, and then you can move up the scale a little bit more. The more you work, the more flexible everything becomes. And um, so as a kid... I really loved the the guy out the Temptations as well. I mean, what a great voice and Smokey. But we, you know, I was taking a hammer to the pearl. Really, I was just crashing everything around. But so my voice was very, oh, you know, yeah. it was an adventure. Tell me about the scene that you were born into. Tell me about what was the music scene at that point in time. What was on the radio? What would it be like going to a nightclub as a kid? Well, there were no nightclubs. It's kind of really. Uh, post-industrial revolution, black country stuff. So there were dance halls, ballrooms, and there was a very uh, vibrant, very active gig scene going on. So in the black country and around Birmingham, there would be three or four great uh, rooms to go to with the beautiful sprung maple dance floors. And um, coming out of the early 60s where everything was like imitation Chuck Berry, so, you know, that sweet little 16 type of stuff. So the rhythms and the dance floor, the whole thing was just this motion of 4-4 four, four time. Through those venues, I, I ended up getting a gig as a master of ceremonies, so I would in, introduce the groups that were coming on that night. Through those places came Wilson Pickett. Wow. I introduced little Stevie Wonder with his orchestra when Fingertips came out, wow. parts one and two, before the real explosion. And um, yeah, there's everybody, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, uh, the Beatles. And there was a town hall scene uh, like here, I guess, where the guy who used to run the Nebworth concerts in the 70s, he captured the franchises of local town halls in England. So yeah, you'd see some amazing artists come through. I mean, and, and the idea of actually packing a, a town hall with 500 people dancing and a spot of fighting and pugilism in the corners just yeah. for a bit of spice was incredible. So it was a very active scene. But for me, I was younger than those guys, so a little bit younger. So I just used to stand in awe looking up at the stage, you know, <laughs> watching these people make it work. How old were you at that time, would you say? About 15. I was already in a group then, and uh, we were murdering John Lee Hooker songs, as only the English could. 
did you think that this would be your professional life or was it just a, a passing fancy at the time? What, what, what was your guess? Well, I didn't have a guess and I didn't, have, I didn't see anything like the whole idea of a, a futurism at all. I was still in the cabins of learning, being educated at school and then on at college. So I didn't have any idea or anticipation, but I just knew that there were certain voices and chord structures and scales that did something to me that didn't have any, nothing to do with anything that came before. I just didn't know what was happening to me when I heard particular musical notation, just some sort of heraldry, something that promised something at the beginning of a song that was like a kind of, was showing me that there was a key to something that we didn't really have in England at all, but it was still going into my into my system and affecting my whole bloodstream with this kind of stuff. I didn't know what it was. It could have been John Lee Hooker just playing boogie chillin', you know, that kind of incessant one chord thing, which yeah. was so contra to the kind of sedate English popular themes in music. But it was almost like, and it's funny how ridiculous that 40, 50 years later, I'd end up in West Africa with a bunch of Tuareg north of Timbuktu who were playing that very deal. Yeah, Unbeknown, they had, they had no idea about, you know, John Lee Hooker at all, but it was the same groove. Yes. So as a kid, I just held these clarions of, of uh, sonic clarions that came and arrested me, you know, much to the fear of my parents who saw me as an academic icon. Do you remember any particular songs from that period that when you heard them just sort of like blew your mind or felt different than everything that came before? Uh, yeah, on, a, on a, a melodic level, I think it must be Alan Toussaint who played the piano lick that opened I Like It Like That by Chris Kenner. Mm -hmm. It's just that very, that whole Crescent City intro because no sooner he'd created this introduction than the song kicked into a groove very polished groove. I mean, Chris Kenner's records really were, well, they were, they, they, it was about groove and about this soul thing, but they, they really polished up that track. And um, But I didn't know anything about it, really. I mean, some of the John Lee Hooker stuff that I heard was, say, the opening of uh, Boom Boom or Dimples, that the swing on that, and the fact that the guitar, I didn't know that at the time. I, I couldn't actually... I, didn't have any vision of what what was right and what was wrong about people's playing. But it just seemed so sort of random. Yes. There was no sign of Johnny Mathis. It was just yes. this kind of, wow. You know, yeah, I was moved by this stuff. And I began to realize that it was all black, you know, that I could hear. I could hear these chimes or whatever they were. But, you know, so those were really sort of the bells that started ringing. I mean, really, it's a, it's a, that's a pretty profound question because if I think about it, I could also say that people like Snuff Garrett in L.A. were mm -hmm. producing for Liberty. I know this now, I didn't know then. But yeah. you could hear Johnny Burnett's Cincinnati Fireball on the flip side of Dreaming, and it was just, everything was there. Chick vocals, string parts, this guy who was somewhere near Elvis, you know, and it was a ditty. Yeah. But the, the wordplay in that kind of teen scene thing was right up my street then because I was in love with everybody, you know, 
I, I had a dream about every girl on the street. And these songs kind of, <laughs> they spoke for me. So other than the, the bands that would come through, what was the local scene like? Were many kids making music at that time? Yes, there were hundreds and hundreds of groups. And everybody was playing Bye Bye Johnny wrong. <laughs> I mean, the whole, th I, the Chuck Berry rhythm sections, when we never kind of worked out that one part of the band was rocking and the other guys were swinging behind it, the rhythm sections, and we, we just couldn't read that. Yeah, everyone was just playing the same part, right? <laughs> yeah, it was awful. It was just like, what? Wow. But then again, we were all making the same mistake. And people wore those suit jackets like you see with the safaris now and all the kind of surf beat guys over here. So most people had a kind of maroon suit on with a black velvet collar and had those foot movements like Cliff Richard and the Shadows, that sort of strange yeah. choreography, which is really... That's all we had. When did folk make its appearance? Well, around the same time, I guess. You know the, the last clip in that Hairspray movie when the, the girl wins the dance contest and they're walking home down the street in Philly and some hipster beatnik knocks on the door and as they're walking past, the door opens and they're listening to Dylan yeah. and somebody hands them a spliff. It's that changeover, that moment where the teen scene just gave way because the generation, half a generation older than me, were already in the folk clubs singing Irish mournful ballads. And, and I was attracted to the, the whole deal because if I liked Chris Kenner and Two Saints production and I didn't know what it was, then I would go to a folk club and I'd hear some guy playing an eight-string guitar. I didn't really recognize what it was at the time, but it was because it was kind of disheveled, it was rough. And also it was uncharted land for us to hear this, to try and play this music. So, and the scene there with that kind of folk club thing led to a whole different intellect. People were talking about we Free Kings, Roland Kirk, and, uh, you know, all the good-looking girls now, suddenly they didn't have a million petticoats. They had long hair, and they were carrying a Bucker White LP or the first Dylan album or whatever it was. So I suppose, really, if you think about Dylan's very first venture, that Columbia record, it opened up for sure all that Bucker White stuff and Fixing to Die and all that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and the scene was amazing because um, that, those people were, again, a bit older than me, but they had a key to stuff. They were employed. They had income, so they could mm -hmm. buy records. There was an RCA label in Europe called uh, RCA Jazz. It was a French label that was putting out 10-inch albums and uh, six-track EPs, which opened up the door to the original Sonny Boy Williamson, Elevator Woman and all that stuff. I take it home. By this time, my parents were really worried <laughs> because it was all right. Johnny Burnett was palatable perhaps, but uh, the idea of the blues thing must have been something else because I had one of those record players where you could lift up the central arm and you could just keep playing the same 45 over and over again. That yes. The, the um, playback arm would come back onto the, where the stylus would come back onto the record for five hours. 
or something. <laughs> so, you know, Spoonful or from the Howling Wolf. That, I think that's the, maybe something like that was the final frontier for my parents. And um, <laughs> when I was when I went to school or I was doing a paper round or something, I came back and they cut the plug off the record player. Yeah. That was it. It was open war. It's too much, too foreign, too foreign. Yeah, it was a plug too far. Yes. <laughs> so that was it. Then I I chose Bohemia. You know, even though I could go home and have a nice warm bath, <laughs> that was not really. And you know, people were carrying the literature, the Camus, Albert Camus, and Sartre and Dharma Bum. You know, everybody suddenly was hip to this stuff. And then two German promoters, uh, Lippmann and Rao, who'd been operating pre Second World War, representing oh well, some of the main nightclub personalities then in the old days, they realized this bohemian scene was all over Europe, in all the main towns and, and spiraling into small, smaller communities because pop music really in Europe didn't, popular music was only the popular music that the program planners were prepared to give you. Oh, of course, that's how it always is, but it was so narrow an option that we all knew that there was something else, obviously something else going on, you know. So I think this whole movement was inspired by the conservatism of uh, of our media and the fact that it seemed to me like the upper echelons of broadcasting and the British Broadcasting Corporation, whatever, were waiting for this thing to pass over so they could get back to the audio volume that they, they knew and loved so well. Yeah. It's funny, really, because the mainstream in Europe was augmented slowly by pirate radio that were ships out in the British Channel, English Channel, who were transmitting programs which were sponsored by various record labels. So, you know, when I was doing my homework at my grandparents' house on a Friday, I could tune in to Tony Hall, who had this amazing thing called the American Hot Ten. And it would be all London American records. And, and London American as a record label was basically a conglomerate to channel and filter smaller labels in the US who didn't have international deals. Mm -hmm. So it would, you'd go right the way through from Shop Around by the Miracles to the Chimes or Del Shannon or. Chuck Berry was then on London, you know, and the whole chess catalogue from, from Chicago came out through that label. So there was jazz and there was Diana Washington and there was mm -hmm. that. So as it, time went on more and more, as an English kid, I was becoming more and more and more sort of engrossed and consumed by the variety of music from America. I'm surprised to hear about Dylan because I, I think of, obviously, we, we all think of the blues coming from the States and then the British invasion kind of reacting yeah. to the American blues scene. But I never thought about that with folk because we think of folk as being traditionally Irish music originally. Mm. So we don't think of the American connection here. But it's interesting to hear Dylan be the first name that you bring up. Yeah, well, Girl from the North Country, what is that really? Is it Scarborough Fair? What, what, where does it come from? Of course, now I know a lot more historically now. I can put people to sleep if they're feeling un, unsettled <laughs> on an airplane. I can just give them a quick three hours about <laughs> the, the conversation between 
the English murder ballad and Doc Boggs. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I just think that there was so much romance about Dylan, so much enigma. And he was not on his own, of course, but for us, he was, uh, he, he was the Dharma bum. You know, yeah. he was bringing this, he was opening the doors. And then I suppose Leonard Cohen after him would be important in the UK. Sure. Well, I don't know. You know, I was, I think I could hear the sort of what everybody's opinion about music. That this, the very idea that we're doing this, you and I, after we've both been aware of each other for a long, long time, half a century mm-hmm. in my case, I suppose really to talk about music now is a bit, it's a bit odd because I only know what I can tell you in this flurry of energy and a, and a small coffee. But what's really happened to me all the way through was the cause and effect. And one thing leads to another, leads to all, all the way through. So Dylan and his adventures opened the, it up so that we knew about Dave Van Ronk and, you know, mm-hmm. Spider John Corner. I mean, can't he, never mind the British bringing the blues to America. It was already that the young white kids were really doing, making a great job of it with Mike Bloomfield and uh, Elvin Bishop and Canned Heat and that. Seeing those clips of Newport Folk Festival and stuff that now or in 1970, when looking back and seeing our good friend Ahmed Hurtigan in the crowd, you know, it's these. Yes. It, it, the links, they're indelible parts of my DNA. They're fantastic in the true sense of the word, channels of stimulus. We'll be right back with more from Rick Rubin and Robert Plant after a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. 
Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with more from Robert Plant and Rick Rubin. When Zeppelin 1 first came out, did it take off right away or what was the reception right in the beginning? Well, we were playing before it came out. So we got to LA December 68 and um, it came out sometime in January. And I guess Jimmy's reputation from the Yardbirds was powerful and he threw some amazing shapes musically and physically. It was just, there was a whole cavalcade of energy. And you have to be transmitting in the same, on the same planet as that. Yes. Otherwise you don't have, there's no gig for you. Yes. And I, and I really knew how to do that because John Bonham and I, we already had our own similar but mysteriously obscure Band of Joy, which was nuts. Uh, it was really stretching within the limitations that we had as kids. You know, I mean, I was 19 when I met uh, Jimmy and John Paul. But the energy, the fireball that we developed and was created around us took no prisoners, yeah. with or without a success of an album or whatever it is. But it did kick in. And it was a very um, stimulating incredible surge because with the advent of fm radio playlists were abandoned quite often you know it would just you could go from vorjak to um, kaleidoscope speaking from mars or whatever it would be it was just yeah. fantastic that you know people were just going yeah man this is music and then so we'd go places and they'd just put our record on and play both sides of it and then talk for a while and then they'd say what do you want to play you know so they'd let us loose on the libraries in the radio stations which was the wrong thing to do incredible yeah it's so great though that you got to yeah. do that so we were kind of passing them out through the toilet window <laughs> look at this <laughs> quick take this you know this like, thievery yeah yeah it was so much more uh so much more freedom in in the whole delivery of music to the people in those days what was the feeling after Bonham passes? Was there any talk of continuing or was it clear that that was not going to happen? Well, you know, as a four-piece band, what are you going to do? I mean, I don't know how anybody could ever, any group of people could find when 25% of the, the driving wheel, which is so characteristic and really surges. I mean, it wasn't just that he was a magnificent drummer. It was just more the point that he was, um, he could telegraph the turns in the songs. Yeah. He could make it all swing. Yes. 
And when he was tired of um, an idiom within the song, he'd go into waltz time for a minute and just look at me and laugh. <laughs> yeah, he was playing jazz. Yeah, yeah. And he got fed up one time, I remember, in uh, somewhere in New York. He just got up and walked through his drum kit. That's it, I don't want to do that. And we switched quickly to going to California or some acoustic <laughs> song while somebody lured him back onto the riser. But it's, it's funny, really, because uh, last night I spent the evening with Jason Bonham, and it was fantastic. I mean, Jason's come a long way, and he's, um, he's 55, and I think I've known him since he was one. Yeah, so Bonham was crucial. Couldn't, nobody could consider moving on. Since you played with so many great musicians over the years, would you say that the nature of playing with him was a particular thing? Was he unlike any drummer you've ever played with? Well, yeah, bearing in mind that we started playing together in one of those sprung maple leaf dance floors yeah. and it's in a dance hall when I had a group called the Crawling Kingsnakes. And uh, I mean, we were too young to drive. We hadn't got driving licenses. We were just kids. And he said, you're all okay. He said, you know, he said, but you'd be a lot better if you had the best drummer in the world behind you. I said, yeah, but I already do. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, I know that you're good, but where do you live? And he told me, I said, oh, you can't join our group. It's, we can't afford the gasoline to go and pick you up and drop you off. <laughs> so, so we did a bit of thievery and I, I got caught by the police for sucking fuel out of a gas tank one night just to keep it going. I think most every drummer I've worked with in their own way has had a huge effect on me, uh, really, right up to right now, you know. But, um, yeah. I mean, Clive Deemer, who played with us in the original post-page plant times in uh, Strange Sensation, he's, he's with Radiohead now. <clears throat> when I met him, he was just finishing off the Portishead era. Mm -hmm. And he, in a totally different way, he'd done all that stuff with Ronnie Size, the drum and yeah. bass stuff. In, in, he was from Bristol. He still is. And at that turnaround of drumming and the incidental polyrhythmic stuff that which now you just get four good bars and loop it up and then drop an incendiary into it after a minute. It was brilliant. Let's talk about that four good bars idea because I used to collect Zeppelin bootlegs of live shows uh -huh. and they were so different from night to night the dynamics of the song, the length of the sections. It was yeah. so improvisational. Was that unique to your band or was that what everybody was doing at that time? Because it seems so foreign now. Well, I think the flexibility was very interesting because John Paul Jones and, in fact, the three of them, I became just like a passenger, really, a voyeur. I bought the ticket not, most of the time. <laughs> sometimes I could leave the stage and talk to members of the audience and come back on again. And uh, I did start learning Welsh at one point. I had a little textbook. <laughs> but they get into grooves like Alphonse Mouzon or Pretty Purdy. Or they'd just listen to stuff on the way to the gigs. Or we, we all carried these big record players with huge boxes of albums and... There would be all that late uh, Johnny Guitar Watson, all that sort of great groove stuff. And so that would make its way into uh, extended instrumentals. But everybody, I think, was doing it. The aeroplane, in their way, were doing it. Grateful Dead, for sure, you know. But I think there was something kind of unusual about the whole, the three guys in Zeppelin, where it was that they kick in immediately and we could write stuff like The Crunch on Houses of the Holy. Yeah. You know, we go and see James Brown's real hot 
band the JBs and all that, and just the stimulation and the stimulants of the time just are oh, just taking it all in. I think that's the thing. I think it was a wide open possibility in those periods in the early 70s of writing where we were leaning, borrowing, leaning and developing brand new stuff in a very beautiful haphazard way. Yeah, We didn't have a group chaplain. But it, it always came out like new music, like you would be inspired by James Brown, but the thing that came out sounded like Led Zeppelin. You'd be inspired by uh, reggae music, and the thing that came out sounded like Led Zeppelin. It never sounded yeah. derivative, ever. It always sounded like new music. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I used to take the stuff home. I mean, I didn't have a stereo system until the end of Led Zeppelin II, so the only time I ever heard any stereo interesting their stereo stuff was when i went in the studio and heard the panning on whole lot of love or something like that you know uh, it's pretty primeval that my world i had a simple tape recorder and i was able to work with backing tracks and stuff at home but my contribution was real tough because these guys were taking it somewhere nobody had been before and, and i had to make something melodically interesting and also by that time, I was 20, 21 years old, and I was still trite in my lyrical, whatever it was. But here and there, it started, I started shaping some opinions up and having enough time as a, as, a, as a parent and still being around that bohemian scene I mentioned and still living where I came from, as I still yeah. do now. Yeah. It's exactly the same. Bonzo's house is like five miles from mine still. Wow. Yeah. And it's, there's nothing antiquarian about any of it, you know. We just... The blues rolls on, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a prolific time and, and a time of uh, great, there was a great deal of uh, mutual inspiration between the four of us at that time. And there was a lot of fun. Were there cliques within the band? Like, were there any people who hung out with other people more than other people? How did it work, the internal dynamics of the band? It would change. I mean, the very, very first times together was... Uh, Obviously, Bonzo and I borrowing his mom's car to go down to a, an audition <laughs> and siphoning the petrol out of somebody else's car while they were asleep to get there, that sort of deal. And as time went on, I think really the sharing of musicality was the kind of beacon. So John, Paul and Bonzo made, when we were working on stuff, when we were staying in these sort of, what you'd loosely call residential places, which were basically houses with a with a staircase, a stairwell where we could get that sound that mm -hmm. the Beastie Boys <coughs> <coughs> borrowed. Uh, the whole deal was like uh, we were there. So sometimes somebody would go to bed, or somebody would go somewhere, and some two guys might be left just playing rhythm parts, just grooving the two of them yeah. you know and jonesy's playing man i mean just huh. it was very funny and it's still funny now with john paul because uh he used to say to me well yeah that seems like a good melody on that track robert uh i said what do you think about the second verse of the lyric he said oh no I, sorry i don't listen to the lyrics <laughs> so that, that was another brandishing of the war you know the tomahawk right okay so I wrote a couple of songs about him shrouded in some other character. And it's just, just I said, you may, we, you, perhaps you may need to listen to this, John. So it was funny, you know, 
But Jimmy and I had this pastoral thing that we, we traveled back from places through. We had adventures in Thailand and India, and Jimmy went on to Egypt. Uh, I, I spent so much time in Morocco and, and got him to come down there in 72. We traveled a lot, just off the beaten track. And we got pretty close to some times when we were very lucky to get out of some of these places. Or we found ourselves in the wrong parts of nearly every city we went to, <laughs> intentionally, uh, quite often. But it gave us more savor for, for what we were writing and thinking and feeling. I mean, there wouldn't be a Kashmir without us traveling down to the pre-Sahara yeah. um, in Morocco or whatever. But then again, Jonesy's contribution to Kashmir was strong, as, and he never went... Were the trips primarily designed for inspiration, or was it just what you were interested in the time and the inspiration happened to happen? No, that we just didn't want to go home. Yeah. So we played in Japan, and it takes ages to get home. No, there was no, it wasn't, we didn't go out to find the world for inspiration. It just, we just went out to find everything for everything. Amazing. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Interesting thing you said earlier about the jam band aesthetic, like Grateful Dead were doing it. We think of the Grateful Dead as a band that that's what they do. Whereas Led Zeppelin, because of the success and the pristine quality of the albums, we think of those songs as carved in stone based on the album version. We don't think about any Grateful Dead songs that way. No. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's a, yeah. it's an interesting thing. You don't expect to see Led Zeppelin on a good night and it be different than the thing that you're used to. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's a kind of shock. I think most, the relevance of that was it would be pretty dull to follow structure. I mean, that's yeah. the thing that takes, we all know talking about music is like dancing about architecture. That's a little <laughs> bit of a, it's tired, but here we are doing it. But the bottom line is if you had to, if you were stuck in the Al Martino vibe every night or whatever it is, and you knew where it began and ended, well, surely accountancy wasn't such a bad idea. Perhaps it was, you know, I could have been working in the Forestry Commission or something like that and watching the changing of the seasons, and that would have been way more rewarding. In fact, I'm going now. Um, goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, so it was great. I mean, and I that claret, that call goes back to the folk clubs, back to the guys singing the Irish murder ballads, unaccompanied singers rambling on all over the place with old stories and tales that had no end. And how many stanzas of the hangman's beautiful daughter can you remember? I mean, it's almost like people quote from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Well, a lot of my friends, we all quote from the incredible string band, you know, that sort of those places to go where um, where it didn't matter about so much about structure or form. Yes. Which is kind of interesting because look where I am now. How do you compare your relationship with music now versus when you were young? Well, when I was young, I knew nothing. I was a stolen child. It's like music came and swept me away in the torrent and the flood. And I knew nothing, I knew no, no, no indication of anything. I could just as easily get excited about a colliery brass band from Yorkshire as I could from almost from Sleepy John Estes until Sleepy John Estes actually was Elvis. I could hear that in his voice and I could hear this mournful thing come along. And uh, I think my perspective or the information 
highway into me just grew and grew and grew. It's not my business to be opinionated, but I think this has been the great escape, this whole deal of my, my time to inquire into music. And yet, because, you know, I'm from England, I still don't know too much about certain departments of stuff, you mm -hmm. know, certain categories, certain colleges of music. So I'm like a kind of naive collector of beautiful sounds. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Robert Plant. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Robert Plant. 
how did the first collaboration with Alison come about? She, if she was sitting, she normally sits just next to me over there when we do stuff together. And she has a theory, and I'm going to use this theory as being it because I can't be hugely specific. I got invited somehow by the guys who run the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in Cleveland because of the my borrowing from Lead Belly to um, contribute to a night of tribute to him at the uh, Cleveland Concert Hall or something, some fancy hall, which you'd have to approach with hushed tones as you go in. There was Odetta, Harry Belafonte, Clarence Gatemath Brown, and myself, what would I do? And I had a communication with Alison. And um, there was this idea, the whole idea of like, have you ever thought about singing with somebody else? And I thought, well, how on earth would I be able to sing alongside somebody else? Because I really don't know what I'm going to sing next in the middle of a song that's got a melody. Yeah. I maneuver melodies around like crazy. But anyway, she came to the rehearsals in Cleveland and it was a very, very warm and endearing moment of, of meeting this new person. And she could play like a fiddle playing. It was insane. And we had this idea. I had this idea. Justin Adams was with me from the Space Shifters. And um, we, I had a word with David Hidalgo and he brought Los Lobos with him. And I asked him if he would bring his mariachi-esque instruments, the quattro and all that sort of thing, so that we could do lead belly stuff, but we weren't going to hammer it because the worst thing in the world us British rock group can do <laughs> is hammer the blues <laughs> into submission. <laughs> So uh, so we did, and Alison was very comical. We laughed a lot because she kind of straightened me up and said, uh, yes, uh, with that sort of tone of affected tone of voice, if you want me to sing with you, how can I sing with you if I don't know what the hell you're going to sing next? How can I harmonize with you when nobody knows what the hell you're doing, including you? I said, yeah, that's a very good point. So that's what happens in harmonies then, is it? Because I thought in Zeppelin I'd just sing and put a third on top of it, or Jimmy would, and John, John Bonham had a great voice, would just do some tra-la-las, but we were never going to be the association or something like that, sadly. <laughs> I wish we had. So it was a bit of a sort of whoop, and um, I think it frightened Alison to death, and, but it was funny, and it was a fantastic night. Uh, it was really, really good. And... Um, she thought that there was some carriage in it, and I thought there was a possibility of um, moving along together in some form or another, or even just seeing. And I was fully aware of the fact that because she's that much younger than me, I, I think Led Zeppelin kind of, I wouldn't say it frightened her, but I think because of her, her time as a, a young girl, she was so diligent in her work and in her studies, if you like, mm -hmm. that if she ventured into rock at all it was that kind of 80s place where melody and pop was disguised with big guitars yes there was no existential moments of spiraling into the vortex so i don't think she really had any idea about what i was all about particularly she probably did a bit of homework but and so why not try and see what we can do and i thought what well, does that mean i've got to sing the same thing how am I ever going to actually hold a melody down? But so we came to this very studio 
and met up and uh, discussed the in advance the possibility of actually making some music together and we needed a master magician yeah. because we were so radically different uh, in how the way we projected what we'd spent our lives listening to yes and how we thought of anything you know we were just from the other side of the world and she'd worked with t-bone Burnett on uh, down from the mountain and uh, oh brother where art thou mm -hmm. t-bone he's a remarkable pistol he's a cannon he's got a head full of stars that fly out when you least expect them there's some that great glow of idea and stuff like that. But I didn't know anything about it. I just knew who he was and what he did. I remember as a kid, he was on the Rolling Thunder Review, that sort of thing. But I didn't know what he was going to be all about. It was quite startling. So we agreed that we would try about four songs. And if it didn't work, just give it up and just move on because adventure's adventure. And um, I got a load of songs off my jukebox and... The deal was that I would go to her house on a Sunday morning here in Nashville and I would meet him and her. And the door opened, flung open, and there's this sort of, there's Alison being really charming and behind her this great imposing shape of <laughs> John Henry Burnett. <laughs> and uh, I went, shit, so now I've got a, there's two of them. <laughs> so, so they said, <laughs> come in, what key? I said, what? I don't know what key. I don't know what key anything is. Yeah. Uh, I, normally I had to sing in E, so I had to go and train to be a castrati in Naples. Is that true? <laughs> no, I've had children. <laughs> I've had children since then. <laughs> uh, or at least I've gone through the motions. But um, no, it was like, okay, sit down and um, have, would you like a cup of tea? And here's the song. And I went, well, okay, where's the microphone? Where's the reverb? Where's the slap back? Where's that planty sound? Where's the 45 millisecond delay? Where's my stuff that I, I live on? You know, like a guitarist yeah. has a pedal. And there was nothing. There was just two couches and an acoustic. And, and we just started musing. And I felt so exposed and vulnerable. We tried, uh, I think it was Doc Watson's Your Long Journey. And uh, I mean, there were harmonies that crossed over and did something else, like like you know, like the Louvin Brothers or Everly's or whatever yes. it was. And I yes. went, Jesus Christ, how do I get out of here now? <laughs> there must be some burgers here or something. Something's going on somewhere. I could feel the moisture on my brow. <laughs> I've got to get out of this place. Anyway, time went on, and these guys appeared at the studio. Who were? I mean, Alison says she'd never met. Jay Bellarose before, the drummer, and she knew Dennis Crouch, the bass player, and uh, Mark Rebo, I think. These are all sort of, I guess, all running in the same posse as Tebow. And, yeah. um, and we just started kicking the things around, and uh, so the, the four tracks came, and the four days came and went, and I got in the car and drove from here down the Natchez Trace, Alabama, and through into Clarksdale, Mississippi, to see my friends. I always thought that I had friends in Clarksdale who were actually not there, but they were there because they'd helped me all the way through my life, mm. you know, the musicians, the singers and stuff. Mm -hmm. I wrote a song with, with Jimmy called Walking Into Clarksdale, and the whole litany of that lyrically is all about that deal. And it's almost like I go back to the womb, back to mm -hmm. 
the real mother of the yes. whole thing for me. So I fled to Clarksdale, and all the way down, I played these CDs in the Crown Vic. I went, wow, this is really, this is really cooking. I mean, this is like, it's sexy in a kind of way that, like, it's not wiggling itself around with flashing lights. It's just. It's just good. <laughs> it's yeah. just good. Blew my mind when I heard it. Blew my mind. And mine too, because, yeah. you know, you know more lightly what kind of guy I am. This is like, I'm just so excited about stuff. I, I can take a, a spoonful of something and blow it into some other element of genre, whether it's a piece of Moroccan Berber music or whatever it can be. And not being really a musician has helped me in that, mm -hmm. you know. But here we are in the, in the kind of font of groove and good taste. And yet we're also in Nashville, which is full of country music, which some of it needs to be taken off and <laughs> into a corner and talked to very severely. You know, once the country guys started wearing ripped jeans and growing their hair long, it, I was able to move around a little easier. But uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like, oh, so this thing, this sound came out and, and Alison and I looked at each other and went, poor. This is unusual, isn't it? And when we started doing things like that rich woman by Lil Millet, I've got a woman with plenty of money. And she was right on it, bang, as if she'd spent all her time in the French Quarter <laughs> gigging, you know. She was like incredible. I said, whoa, no little boy lost on the hillside here. So that's how it, that's how it started off. The blend of your voices together, I, I would have never guessed it would be as magical as it is, but I guess you can never guess, you know, why certain voices blend and it makes an, a sound that's so specific and it is so specific in the case of you guys. It's amazing. I know. And there's nothing worse than generalizing about somebody's gift. And uh, back there in 1970, 71, if I think about the other voice, songs like That's The Way or The Rain Song or whatever it might be there, then that voice was always there. But it depends on the melodic request of the song and how much space you've got in within the structure of the lyrical thing to let the voice have its character and put enough compression on it and stuff to make it in your ear rather than down your throat, you know. Yeah. And I think that these songs, the actual structure or architecture of them allows per the personality of that other voice to work. Yes. And, it's, and it was time that I made a break. I think you have to take leaps now and again, especially as you're not trading on any particular worry about the only bread you've got to put on the table is the bread within your own spirit. Yes. That's why I'm jet lagged absolutely exhausted and sitting here talking a lot of stuff. <laughs> I wanted to say your last solo album was incredible as well. It's a it's a beautiful album. And is, it, is there anything you do for your voice to keep it? What are the tricks? Because you consistently sound good. Well, first of all, I have to mean what I'm singing. I write those lyrics and I basically made errors and I was... Yeah, I don't know what it was really. The whole those last two records were really just about basically coming back to somewhere that is so in me. The whole Welsh border thing, the whole deal of 
it's not like coming from LA. It's, it's like I was born with half of this history in me, in this, in my blood, and I had to leave circumstances here in America that was for my, definitely for my betterment, and I, I didn't have the balls to stay and go through the decompression to change completely change my my time so I went back so I wrote a lot about the struggle and I think when you write about something that's absolutely real and affecting your life and um, affecting the way you sleep affecting the way that you think that and your impression of how you are to yourself you can't to be a disappointment to yourself as a contributor to other people's lives is a tough one so it was that's blues in a totally different form. Yes. Tell me about your songwriting process. Does it start with music and then melody and then lyrics, or is it different, different ways? Well, I got a book. This morning I wrote some stuff down. I was listening to uh, BBC Radio 4 this morning, and um, the guy who runs the, the British Museum, he, he has a program, a 15-minute program. In the, it's uh, The World in a Hundred Objects, it's called, and he was talking about Martin Luther and the Reformation in Germany. And he was talking about the whole idea of uh, Luther's quill and the, the very first sort of propaganda to renovate Christianity and get rid of the whole idea of actually paying for absolution. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like contributing to, like you can skip purgatory if you just yeah. put in a just few more. Just pay for it, yes. Yeah, yeah. And all that stuff, and I, I just shut up immediately, whizzed to my book flipped it over and started writing uh, because how do I get absolution from my ridiculousness? You know, I like me, you know, I actually think I'm really silly, but at the same time, there's some other corners to be sorted out. And I think writing, I have this book and I can flip it over. Somebody else has got a groove, I can join it. Or I can present a, a couple of couplets and see what people can do for that. We spend a lot of time in the sp Space Shifters thinking about Goretzky, the composer from Poland, mm -hmm. that mournful music, and then creating huge blocks of uh, guitar and all that. So, yeah, that's that world over there. And, and it was good this time because with T-Bone, I was able to uh, extend that into a, a, what you'd loosely call an original song. Yeah. on the new record, you know, it's just like, hey, that's good. This is a new one, but it's an old theme. Yeah, but maybe that's what, maybe the next album will be all new songs with you and Alison. Well, we were talking nice. about it last night, yeah. Why not? Yeah, I think we've got some time in this, another studio in the next couple of days. And um, I think Alison might wanna put on the Wanda Jackson outfit and see how mean, mean man sounds or something like that. You yeah, know, fantastic. she's ready to boom. Is it different singing a cover song or singing your own words? How does it feel different when you're singing them? Oh, yeah, it's radically different. How do I feel? I feel like if a song, if you can actually get into the, the original song and into how it was working, sometimes if they're ditties, you have to, I consider that the best thing to do is to make them give them some brevity yes so for example the mel tillis song stick with me baby was the flip of a um everly uh, track and it was really great the guitar sound on that original warner's release 
the electric guitars were great, but by slowing it down and turning it into this sort of love-struck pastiche, gave it some chutzpah, gave it some nerve. Yeah, yeah, gravitas for sure. Yeah, which it didn't have, uh, or which it did have, but within another era. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about making the journey across the eras with these songs, otherwise they could end up, you know, like um, Sean on our live which is nothing wrong with that. That's great, but it's yeah, this yeah, had yeah. to be something, and especially when you've got these guys grooving around you. Have you ever considered doing an album of popular standards like Willie Nelson did with Stardust, anything like that? Definitely not. Although I love Stardust. It's yeah. a beautiful song. It's incredible. Are you a Sinatra fan or no? I like what he, he did, but at the same time, that world there... Is, it's magnificent within itself, I, of course. And that's tr phrasing and Nelson Riddle and the whole. Yeah. But I'm afraid I can't really. I mean, this really is the American songbook here, what, yes, what we've been doing. True. It's not the kind of schmooze and the stuff that you might hear at a, you know, when your woman puts on her stilettos. And it's not something where you'd be sitting, standing on a porch in some fancy club in. Chicago's West Side. America has so many more sides to it, and uh, absolutely. So I, I see some of these songs as being the real America. Yes. For me, as an Englishman, that's a bit of a rich thing to no, say. That's beautiful. There's something beautiful about the romantic vision of a place from an outside perspective that's different than if you grew up in Mississippi. It's just different. You can, oh, you yeah. can love it in a different way when you're looking at it from the outside and there's a romantic vision that doesn't come when you grow up in it. It's just a different thing. No, there's a lot of people flinching down there. And I must say that in all the years of traveling through America as a rock and roll singer with a Moroccan lean, I never really knew any, any acre of it at all. I didn't, I thought I had it covered, but I had no idea that every three miles you're in another America or even yes. 300 yards. So there's no such thing as generalizing. I've been reading Travels with Charlie Steinbeck and of course his vision, he was disturbed in 1960 writing that. It's very humorous, but then I read this um, William Lee's Heat Moon book, The Blue Highways, and uh are just so impressed by the the different cultures and peoples that came through and parked up in different valleys in Kentucky and the whole Appalachia thing. Amazing. Yeah. So the start of playing, the diction, the phrasing, phrasing of everything, never mind what happens when you walk down the street and somebody's coming towards you, you know, and you're going, hmm. Uh, but I look at that, I would say that that guy is a Russian origin so you start going wow when you get up into oregon and places on that coastline there you see the effects of the all the people that came around all those years from a different approach to yes. the to this beautiful country I have a friend who's from um the appalachia region and he was learning to play banjo and they were explaining to him this is the way we play it here but if you go three miles that yeah. way this is the lick there yeah and it's and all the songs are just like almost like you know regional accents. That's right. The same is true with the music. Community by community, they have their own sound. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's something else, isn't it? Well, it's a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. 
And thank you for making such a beautiful album again. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for um, for getting me up so that I actually have a function today. Otherwise, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah, but it's nice to see you. Same. Thanks to Robert Plant for chatting with Rick about his days with Zeppelin and more. You can hear his latest album with Alison Krauss and all of our favorite songs of his on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafin. Our executive producer is Neil Abel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription service that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music is by the great Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.